Everyone's looking for their vision of the good life. Everybody defines it a little differently, but we all want our life to be filled with different things. Uh, Peace, joy, happiness, success, love, excitement, adventure, and fulfillment. And desiring those things isn't the problem. They're not wrong. In fact, desiring these things are inescapable. God has placed those desires in our hearts, and we go on various quests to find those things. Solomon calls this the search for gain in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we've been tracking uh, that search now for about five chapters. And again and again, Solomon returns dissatisfied. Every age and every movement and every belief system offers its wisdom, its path towards finding that good life. For example, Buddhism offers the path to true enlightenment, enlightenment. Of get, by getting rid of your connections to this physical world, the entanglements, the things that ensnare us, those that hold you back, is really material and physical. This world is something to be escaped so that you can reach nirvana. Ages past have promoted things like honor, duty, and admirable virtues as the path to the good life. Some have offered the idea of hedonism, not Christian hedonism, but true hedonism as the pursuit of pleasure. Whatever makes me feel good is the highest form of life and the good life. The carnage of such thinking is inevitable as we treat people as stepping stones towards our fulfillment and our pleasure. People are consumed and used for my pleasure and then tossed aside like an old pair of sneakers. Wealth, fame, and power are sometimes held up as the example of the good life. Maybe you can become famous. Maybe you can become a social media influencer. Whatever that means. And I'm not really sure why anyone would desire that. Maybe you can have enough money to do whatever you want. To buy that house or those cars. Or to take those exciting vacations. But it's all been tried again and again. And it really never works. Solomon has told us all of this has been done under the sun. And ours is a day where the idea of self-expression, self-fulfillment, finding your truest being, your truest self within, is the highest good. And in order to do that, you need to be liberated from anything that might hold you back, that might question that true identity that you form of yourself inside. You need to be freed from the expectations of others. The expectation of society, the stereotypes that exist, the oppressive past, and even the bonds of biology. You must be freed from those things if you are to really find the good life. In our day, people obsess with the imminent frame. That's just a fancy word for that which can be seen and touched and is right in front of us. We live with little thought beyond the next event, the next meal, or the next tweet. Some have dubbed this the microwave generation. Deep thinking, patience, those are no longer valued. It's all knee-jerk reactions. And in such a society, it is the self that becomes the center of life. The good life is found by looking deeper and deeper within yourself. I can have everything I have, or everything I need, I can find within, if only others would leave me alone. What a bunch of selfish gobbledygook. This is the listen to your heart generation. Where every Disney movie points parents or paints parents and society is holding their children back. And if you would just allow them to be them, that would provide them with a good life. And so we have 
kids shows and kids stories, we have main characters running around saying things like, I don't even know who I am anymore. What an odd question. Who am I anymore? I'll just look further within. It's the theme of a, a thousand modern songs. Take, for example, the song Simple Man by the band Leonard Skinner. It's a song in which it is set as if the mom is telling her son, this is what the good life is. This is what I want for you in your life. Listen to these words. She says to her son, don't worry. You'll find yourself. Didn't know I lost it, but you will find yourself. Follow your heart and nothing else. You can do this, babe, if you try. All I want is for you, my son, to be satisfied. To be satisfied. The only way you will really be satisfied, my son, is by turning within and then following your heart. This is a long way from the call of Christ to pick up your cross, die to yourself, and follow him. And we have become an inherently and obsessively selfish people. And you will not find more anxious, more confused, and more depressed people who only turn within, who cannot see beyond themselves, and who are told to continually look deeper and deeper within. The search for gain, the search for the good life, is nothing new, and it will be with us until Christ returns. It is hardwired into our hearts, and that is why Ecclesiastes resonates with us. Solomon's been on the journey, he's come back dissatisfied, and he is giving us God-inspired instruction on how to lessen the vanity of life. And that's what we see here in the second half of chapter 5. Solomon is going to return to some themes we've seen earlier in the book, but he's going to show us how vanity and frustration and vexation in our lives can be increased and how it can be decreased. How we can make our life worse as we strive after the wind, or how we can make it better as we receive the gifts of God. In this first section, this first area of life where vanity can be increased is in the realm of politics and government. I have tongue-in-cheek titled this section, Solomon Tosses the Tea Overboard. He has his own little Boston Tea Party as he rails against the corruptions in government. Listen to his words here, beginning in verse 8. If you see in the province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high officials watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. One of the main things that increases vanity in life is poor leadership. I probably don't need to convince you of that. But poor leadership, especially within the realm of government, has the ability to greatly increase the vanity of our lives. And Solomon, who is the king, who is at the head of government, he looks out and he sees the oppression of the poor, he sees the injustices, and he laments. And we can echo that sentiment. We've all felt it. It's nothing new. And Solomon warns us here, this should not surprise you. We sometimes act shocked when we see things going on around the world. When we see wars in Ukraine or wars in Africa. When we see oppression from our own elected officials. And we wonder, how can this be? But Solomon says, do not be surprised. In fact, if you read world history, what we have today, a stable government that is largely just, is the exception to the rule. 
World history is littered with tyrants, with oppression. And it is only in the West where Christianity had such a large influence that that became not the norm. But why is Solomon tossing the tea overboard here? The figurative tea overboard. Note where he locates the problem. What is the problem? What is the source of this oppression? It's in the size of the government. The bloated nature. Big government is the problem. It says, for the high officials watched by a higher one. And there are yet higher ones over them. The problem is, as in government, often attracts more and more greedy people at different levels of authority who need to feed their own greed. They're all looking out for number one, me, myself. And they get rich off the backs of their own people. This is the open secret in our own political system. People with no matter the letter next to their name, they they go to Washington, they are not filthy rich, and they leave Washington filthy, stinking rich. All the while driving the people into greater and greater national debt. One of the problems with the democratic process is that as a model, it draws people into leadership who think they should have power. And often, those who think they have a right or feel entitled to power are those who should be the furthest from the levers of power. This is, what, this is the way governments tend to go. They oppress those so that they can keep their power and to keep their own money. And when those on the lower rungs, those who are under their rule and authority, start to push back, well, they get retaliated against. We need to look no further, no further, than the police state forming to our north in Canada. You push back against these mandates? Well, we're going to freeze your bank accounts. This is the way governments tend to go, unless there is considerable effort and diligence put in the other direction. Our founding father, Thomas Jefferson, he put it this way, the natural progress of things is for liberty to yield and the government to gain ground. For liberty to yield and the government to gain ground. And we should not be surprised at this. The Bible here, and and many other places, establishes the foundations we need to see that government should be limited. Limited. Why do I belabor this point? In many ways, our society has two competing paths laid out before us. Two different ways that we could go. And one solution that is offered for us is the soft form of new Marxism, in which they say the solution is is you should give more power to the centralized federal government. Give it more power. It is a breathtakingly stupid argument for any student of history. They will say that the government has been oppressive, that it has wronged minorities, that it has done all this evil. And you know what the solution to the problem of government being evil to the people is? Give us more power. That's public education for you. Insanely stupid and illogical. The other option is that we adopt a realistic view of man rooted in scripture, like our founders did, that man is sinful, that God is God and government isn't, and that rights come from God, and that he naturally limits the role and the authority of government. And this is important because I trust that you care about the future of your children, your grandchildren, and your great-grandchildren. Their vanity in life will be greatly increased if we go the other path. 
And here's the kicker. No matter how many times pastors tell you this, no matter how many times it is beaten into your head that the Bible does not address the political realm, you cannot unsee it here. You cannot unsee it in Romans 13. You cannot unsee it throughout all of the pages of Scripture. We say we want to teach the whole counsel of God, but then we ignore and neuter Scripture when it doesn't fit our preconceived notions. The Bible contains many political philosophies and statements that we are instructed to live by. And when we do, we will lessen the vanity of life. And this is where Solomon offers the solution in verse 9. He says, But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. It should not pass us by here that Solomon uses the word gain. If you remember back in the chapter 1, he says, What does man gain for all of his toil? Gain is what he has been searching for. And here, he says there's gain. And what this gain is, is a king who's well aware of the abuses of authority and power, but instead of seeking his own power, seeks the good of those he rules over. He seeks cultivated fields. And so it's gain. Not ultimate gain, but it does lessen the vanity of life when we have good rulers. Fields here, a good king seeks cultivated fields, points to enacting policies that promote the well-being of the people by meeting their basic needs. And this is not meeting their needs through things like communism. It's not by giving away free stuff because nothing's free. You have to steal it from someone else to give it to somebody else. But no, the, what we have here are policies that promote affordable necessities and the wealth of a people, material blessings. And fields in our age are not just food, though food certainly, but also affordable necessities like energy, gasoline, and food, where inflation is not at a record pace, where inflation does not rob us and is out of control. History has shown us that the best policies for cultivated fields is to protect individual rights, to protect property rights, to promote freedom in a free market and to prevent evil in the form of theft from bad actors both in the government and outside of it. That is a good ruler. And any nation who has such a ruler is blessed. Now, the other area of life that can increase our vanity is work, is work and specifically uh, the love of money. We see this in verses 10 through 17, but I'll start, or I'll read verse 10 through 12. It says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of our laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. So here's the contrast that is offered for us. There is one who loves money and is rich, and there's a poor man who has contentment. One sleeps fine, the poor man, and the other, the rich man, can't sleep because he's filled with frustration and vexation. The point here is, it's, is the moral of the story from chapters 1 and 2. The finite things of life cannot provide ultimate satisfaction. And our obsessive pursuit of them will increase our frustration and vanity in life. And that is what must hit home for us today. 
If we love money and possessions and popularity and power more than God and others, then our vanity, the frustration of our lives, will increase. Paul tells us and warns us of the same thing in 1 Timothy 6. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Some mistakenly quote this as saying that the love of money is the source of all evil. It's the source of all kinds of evil. And the love here is not that we enjoy money, but that we see these money or possessions and wealth as the main thing. The whole point of our lives, it becomes primary in our heart and it takes the spot of loving God in love of neighbor. In this way, we build our life on money, but money cannot satisfy. They've done whole studies on this. They confirm what the Bible tells us. The studies echo the truth of Scripture. That yes, you need a baseline income so that you're not in poverty. right? And if you have that, you will have satisfaction and happiness. But the more money you get from there, there is not a correlation for the more money you have to the happier that you will be. And in fact, there's often a negative correlation that the more possessions you have, the least or the less happy you will be. To quote the famous actor Jim Carrey again, he says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do whatever they've ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. It's not the answer. Many a rich and famous person knows this and they feel it. And yet they can't let go of their status. They can't let go of their fame. You can see the emptiness in their eyes in their movies and in their magazines and your computer screens. You can see the anguish in their hollow smiles. And every year, one of them dies young in some tragic way or even takes their own life. And people ask, didn't they have everything? No. They had nothing but a fistful of air. Vexation increases as money and possessions increase. And this passage tells us that, the, that part of the reason is that is that more people show up demanding your money when you have riches. But it even goes deeper than that. The more stuff you own, the more that stuff owns you. There's requirements of you. And this will increase your vexation. If you have two cars, you will have two car payments, two insurances to pay for, two cars to buy tires for, and to have routine maintenance for. If you have two houses, you now have two lawns to mow, two driveways to shovel, two mortgages to pay. To houses to upkeep. Wealth sounds great, but the more things you have, the more they have you. And the hours in your week remain fixed. And so your vexation is increased. And so the love of money and possession will often make life more difficult. So much so this section speaks of the rich man who cannot eat and sleep in peace. Money cannot overcome the vanity of life, but the love of it makes it worse. So what's the solution? Verses 18 through 20, Solomon again offers the solution for lessening vanity in this fallen world. And he returns to the solution that we've seen again and again. And again, it's a sucker punch. It's not what you would expect. You think you would say, get rid of your money. Get rid of your possessions. Then you will be satisfied. That's not what he says. Verses 18 through 20. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment 
in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and to rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. The solution is to receive the things of this world, food, drink, possessions, your spouse and wealth as gifts from God. All that you have comes from his hand. From the clothes you wear to the air in your lungs, it is all a gift from God that overflows from his goodness. And he freely gives it. Therefore, you should be thankful to him. But even more than God gives you these things, this passage tells us it is God who gives you the ability to enjoy them. He not only gives you your possessions and your wealth, but he enables you to have joy in them. You ever wonder why those who have so much are often so cranky and depressed and unable to enjoy it? It is in part because God withholds true enjoyment from them because they idolize those things. But the Christian knows that these good things are good because they come from the hand of God. But he also knows that they are not ultimate. They are not all there is to this life. And their goodness is but a pale shadow and reflection of God's goodness. That you can experience God. You can see shafts of his glory, as it were, through the goodness of his creation. And his enabling of you to enjoy it. These closing verses of chapter 5, I think, are some of the most unwoke verses in the Bible. And by woke here, I'm talking about the social justice movement, which teaches us to feel ashamed for our wealth, to be ashamed for our blessings. And this passage tells us that it is not only God who gives us wealth, comes from the hand of God, but he also gives us enjoyment. And he wants us to enjoy our wealth. Your privileges are not something to be repented of. They're not something you should feel guilty about. There is something that you should receive from the hand of God with humility and then enjoy them. And when you do that, it will lessen the vanity of your life. And it's here I need to pause. For it is in these verses that we see how the social justice movement had gotten a hold, a foothold, within evangelicalism. And why it is so hard for so many of our brothers and sisters to leave it behind. Recently, a major Christian university, one that was used to be a stalwart of the conservative evangelical movement, in their chapel service, someone said this about God and his presence. And I think it, this illuminates where we've gone wrong in our theology. He said this, when we look at scripture, God always, note that word, always resides on the bottom of the empire. Any People, or anytime people are marginalized and oppressed, there is a reliance on God that brings new theological perspectives. Any, God is always, always at the bottom of the empire. One wonders if this man has ever read Joseph and how he was at the head of the Egyptian empire. Or David and Solomon as kings over Israel. Or Moses who led the people. Or Christ was king over everything. But here in Ecclesiastes 5, we see that God resides also 
in the blessings and enjoyments of wealth. It is important, brothers and sisters, that you know Scripture and that you know all of it. For by knowing it all, by reading it all, you can guard yourself against the lies of false teachers. You see, evangelicals have seen, they have seen the abuses of the prosperity gospel that says, hey, if you have enough faith, if you have enough conviction, if you believe hard enough, you will be healthy, wealthy, and happy. And this prosperity gospel is patently untrue. It turns the Christian faith into a genie or a vending machine, where if you just try hard enough or say the right incantation, you can be as rich as you want to be in this life. And evangelicals overcorrect to this false teaching by implying or teaching Christians to feel guilty about enjoying the good things of earth or to feel guilty about being successful because obviously the problem is in the things. And here's the thing. Both the prosperity gospel and the soft form of evangelical social justice commit the same mistake by oversimplifying, oversimplifying what scripture actually says about God's character and about the good things of earth. The truth of the matter is, is that the prosperity gospel builds its false teachings on elements of truth. That's what makes it dangerous, is it can quote chapters and verses to you. Material blessings do come from God. They point to his goodness. They point to the goodness of his creation. They point to the future goodness of God's kingdom established through Christ. We must not miss that. But such blessing is not guaranteed in this life. And such blessing is not maintained or obtained by the level of faith that you have. Similarly, evangelicals who flirt with social justice pick up a legitimate stream of thought and teaching in Scripture. God is truly near to the true brokenhearted, to the truly oppressed, and to the truly poor. But it is not, hear me on this, it is not because of their status. But because their status, their physical status, mirrors their spiritual status as sinners. And that is only a benefit to them when they recognize that truth. That physical poverty mirrors our sinful status before God. It's easy to misunderstand, especially when we're only reading bits and pieces of the Bible. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus says this, for example, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. If you take this verse in isolation and you distort what Jesus meant by it, you would think, well, just by being poor, I'm going to get into the kingdom of God. And you would be committing the same mistake that the Jews of Jesus' time committed when they thought that if you were rich, you were clearly being blessed by God and you were in the kingdom of God. If you read Matthew's account of this very same teaching, we read this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit. In other words, the pious poor, the righteous poor, those who have faith. The truth is, in this life, you will have both success and suffering. Wealth and go lean. And both of them instruct. Both of them point to God, just in different ways. And so evangelicalism has propped the door open to the lies of social justice because they often vilify material blessings and teach us to feel guilty if we have those, just as the social justice movement does. And just as a poor person can be righteous and wicked, 
So could a, right, a rich person be righteous or wicked? The problem is not in the things. The solution is not in the things. The problem is in the heart. And the solution is found in faith. Our physical poverty represents our need and our dependence on God as sinners. Our successes, our riches, the blessings we receive from God show us God's goodness, His grace, and the promises of a great inheritance in the new creation. An overflow of God's abundant goodness. And you and I, we can lessen the vanity of our lives, not by feeling guilty that we're having a good time or enjoying something, but by receiving these good things as gifts that point to the goodness of our Maker. And when we do that, we do not stop with the things of earth and experience that same dissatisfaction that our unbelieving friends do. But these things become conduits for us to experience a foretaste of God's glory and His goodness. These gifts, these pleasures, these joys are God-given and are not to be rejected. If you look at something that God says is good, And that God says enjoy. And you say, I'm holier than that. That's not good and I'm not going to enjoy that. In fact, I'm going to feel guilty if I even get a slightest enjoyment out of it. If you think that way, you are at war with God. And of all the gifts that God gives us, the greatest is his own son, Jesus Christ. Christ is our Savior who died for us. Christ is our risen Lord who reigns over everything. Christ is the firstborn of creation, of which he will inherit it all. And in Christ, we will inherit the remade universe. The wealth of this life is but a shadow of the wealth coming to Christ's people. And that is why we can take the gifts of God and give them away. Because they are shadows. And it is not greedy to store up treasure in heaven. Your striving, your works... It cannot bring this about. It must be freely given by God and received by us with thankfulness. And salvation is an all of grace. It is how we experience the abundant goodness of our Creator as He redeems us in His creation. And He does this all through Christ and Christ alone. And to Him we should sing our praises. And as we enjoy the things of this earth, as God gives us the ability to enjoy them, we should thank God. And thank Christ. Let's pray.